Now the reading, the second lesson, is from Romans chapter 12. It's printed there in your liturgy. Read along with me as I read to you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, for as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy and proportion to faith, ministry and ministering, the teacher and teaching, the exhorter and exhortation, the giver and generosity, the leader and diligence, the compassionate and cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, open our ears that we would hear the gospel this morning. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now the verses that we come to this morning in Romans 12, the first couple of verses in particular, where he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Um, they're transitional in this letter. Uh, marking what some New Testament scholars would characterize as a, as a tilt away from the dense theological portion of the letter that concluded at the end of chapter 11, and a tilting towards the remainder of the book. And the remainder of the book is often characterized as ethical teaching. Ethical teaching, raising and, and answering questions about how God's people are to live with each other in community, and also how God's people are to live with those who are not in the Christian community, in other words, with the society as a whole. Now, while verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 is certainly a tilt toward these questions and these themes of, of how people are meant to live with each other in community, these same verses, 1 and 2 of chapter 12, are, are, are also arguably the climax of one of the prevailing theological themes that's been prominent from the outset of the letter. That theological theme I'm referring to is namely that humanity's problem at its base is not first and foremost a problem that's moral, or not first and foremost a problem that's ethical even. But at its base, humanity's problem, according to Paul, is a worshiping problem. <laughs> a worshiping problem. At the beginning of the letter, Paul traces the distortions of humanity that are easily observable in human behavior to humanity's refusal to worship God properly. Paul says in Romans 1, human beings exchange, quote, the truth about God for a lie 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, end quote. Now, I suspect that many of us in this room will take Paul's point here on faith. Okay, Paul, you said that? Good enough for me. I also suspect there's some in this room that would remain skeptical. I don't blame you. Kind of a tough, tough, tough thing to take in, right? This idea that, that humanity's misery stems from lack of proper worship. But regardless if we take Paul on faith or we remain skeptical, I suspect that all of us here are really, when it comes right down to it, hard-pressed to imagine. Hard-pressed to imagine in a, in a meaningful, daily, mundane way how a failure to worship God can rightly translate into the base cause of human misery. I think it's hard for us to imagine that sometimes. But I want to ask you to think for just a minute about your own experience with worshiping things that are not God. Now, maybe we would never think to call it worship, what I'm about to talk about, but I think Paul would certainly call the examples I'm about to offer to you to be in the category of worshiping idols that are not the living God. Example one. And, you know, sometimes when I, I give examples, I give actual examples of things that people have told me. And I scrub them, right? <laughs> I, I scrub them so that, so, so that it's enough like the, the guts of it to, to make the point, but you can never recognize, you know, the story as anything that anyone actually told me. So keep that in mind here when I, when I offer this as an example. I mean, just think about the person who might become agitated really to the point of serious and profound distraction simply because their friend had bought a luxury good that was really superior to the luxury good that they had just bought in the same category. Driven to the point of distraction, how and when will I have an opportunity to one-up that friend? Just, I could have, you know, I could have you know, gotten something better if I didn't, and now I'm forced to look at this other thing. Every time I see my friend, I think, why didn't I get the other thing? That kind of restlessness, something I think a lot of us can relate to. It betrays a bit about our hearts, doesn't it? A heart that's restless until it finds the upper hand in material possessions. A heart that, <laughs> that tries to deal with the problem of envy by simply having, <laughs> having so much that you're not envious <laughs> If anyone else, right? <laughs> Ever thought about that before? It's kind of, kind of a bizarre way of approaching uh, dealing with envy. But all of us can relate to that in some way, I think, even though materialism might not be our thing. We know that only when that heart acknowledges, when that heart acknowledges that its deep ache is really an ache that is signaling a need to worship God. 
Only when that heart will acknowledge that deep ache is really to worship God and enjoy God's love and enjoy God's welcome, enjoy God's hospitality. Only then will that heart be at rest. One thinks of St. Augustine's words that Caleb recently reminded us of, I think two Sundays ago, that lovely quote from Augustine, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. Now, as I mentioned a second ago, materialism may be hard for some of us to relate to, but I dare say that all of us have something or, or, or some group of, of passions, desires, or things that present to us as insatiable. Insatiable desire. We just have to have this or, or more of that. And, and then we have to have more of this and, and that. And, and then more again in order to have the pleasure that we're desperately looking for. But we all know from experience that this sort of behavior acts like an, an addiction. Well, sometimes it can be full-blown addiction. It's, it's like looking for one more high that's higher than the last one, ever elusive. A life like this makes us desperately churn around, thrashing about, exhausting ourselves, turning more and more inward along the way, becoming more and more self-absorbed when we fail to find our purpose in our proper worship of God. Failure to acknowledge the creator-creature distinction rightly. Failure to celebrate and give thanks that we belong to the one who made us find our true selves in that relationship, that, according to Paul, is the source of humanity's misery. That's how Paul sets it up in this letter. And the remedy for humanity's misery is to be made able, to be made able by work of the Spirit, to worship God rightly. That's the gospel. That Jesus has now united humanity with him, making us new and granting us a freedom to be alive to God, freedom to present ourselves to God, present ourselves to our creator, to love God for his creation, to love and praise God for our redemption and salvation, to seek forgiveness regularly and generally celebrate God's work in our life and in the world as our number one priority. That's what Paul says God has done in the gospel. And, and he makes that point so clear in chapter 6, which if you're interested, I think you could go back and hear what we said about Romans chapter 6 on our podcast, um, you know, a few weeks ago when we looked at Romans chapter 6. But, but here's just a, just a few of chapter 6's greatest hits that, that kind of set up chapter 12, if you will. Um, that word present comes up, I think it's six to eight times. So the word, Romans 12, want to present yourselves to God as living sacrifice. That same word is used, I think it's either six or eight times, simply in chapter six. Listen. No longer present your members to sin. Present yourselves to God. 
Present your members to God. Members meaning your, your bodies, right? Your, yourselves. Present yourselves as slaves to God. Slaves to righteousness for sanctification's sake. Now, I deliberately did not read all the verses there, but you get the picture, right? It's as if the language and logic of Romans 6. Romans 6, where, where, where Paul spells it out so clearly that the gospel is our union with Christ, that we've been baptized into his, his death, he's died to sin, we've been united with him in resurrection, and now through all of that, through the work of the Spirit in our life, we now share the same place that Jesus shared with God as his beloved children. With one foot in the world to come, one foot here, that's Romans 6. But it's no accident, I don't, I don't think, <laughs> that that word present is used over and over again in chapter 6 and then used here in 12, 1 and 2. Because what Paul is saying is, is that because of our union with Christ, we are now not simply presentable to God, but we are now able to present ourselves to God as those made able to, through Jesus, rest our hearts in God and worship our Creator as we were intended to worship Him. It's as if the language and logic of Romans 6 were a warm-up for what Paul says here at the beginning of Romans 12. It's like they've, the, the, the language and the logic of Romans 6 have come home to where they were headed all along. When here in our text in front of us this morning, in Romans 12, we're called by Paul to recognize that in Christ, we are those who have been freed to present the whole of who we are to God, the whole of who we are to God, as praise and worship. I don't know if you were here when, when Johanna called us to worship this morning, and she's now working with the kids on the art project. She's not in here. But Caleb referred to it at communion and when she called us to worship this morning, she said, I don't know about you, but I don't know if my creator can handle all of who I am. And she talked about putting things in a mason jar and putting them up in the, in the cupboard and saying, I'll deal with that later, maybe, maybe. But through Christ, those mason jars fly off the cupboard. And through Christ... The whole of who we are is now presentable to God. Not just presentable, but we now have an understanding of our dignity as those created in God's image, being restored to the image of his son. And now we, we find in ourselves the courage and the passion and the desire to present ourselves to God in worship. We've been delivered from the worship of idols, which is no worship at all. And in and through Jesus, we're made able to worship our Creator and our Redeemer. The beginning of Romans 12 
is certainly a high point in the letter. But the other thing about it is it's 12, 1, and 2. The more I go through Romans, the more I'm convinced it's this amazing pivot point that ties together themes and, and acts as a, well, as a pivot to, to move us from one thought to another, but along many different, through many different layers. You know, on the one hand, it's this pivot from deep theological reflection to now how do you live in light of that? The other hand, it's, it's that moment where Paul says so clearly that the human, the, the, the miserable human situation of not being able to worship God as we might and worshiping idols, that's been resolved in Jesus and now we're being made able to worship God, our creator. But, it's, but you don't hear it as loudly as you should if you don't hear it immediately following the verses that preceded at the end of chapter 11. The end of chapter 11. Now remember that the end of chapter 11 is Paul's conclusion to his sustained lament that began in Romans 9 where he, he questions the purposes of God in light of Israel's wholesale failure to recognize that Yahweh was at work in Jesus as the Messiah. But here at the end of chapter 11, Paul, just like the psalmist in our call to worship, Paul's worship of God has given him an experience of God that puts him in a hopeful frame of mind. Romans 9 through 11 begins in lament and ends in hope. The psalmist considers in our call to worship God's faithfulness, even in the midst of adverse circumstances. He looks forward to a time when all the kings of the earth will worship God. He looks forward to a salvation that's bigger than he could possibly imagine. Similarly, when Paul considers the misery of humanity, of unbelieving Jews and Gentiles alike, he is finally hopeful. And here is what he says. Now, if you're not tracking with this, if you can't remember Romans 9 through 11, I'm sorry. It's okay, though. I mean, it was like I'm paid to think about this stuff all week, all right? But just imagine that, you know, you threw the biggest birthday party to surprise your friend or loved one that you could possibly afford, that you could possibly figure out, and then they come to it and they are nonplussed and walk right out the door. You know, this is how Paul feels about Israel's wholesale rejection of Jesus and Messiah. And it causes him to stumble. And he says, what is wrong? And he says, what is wrong with you, God, that this isn't working out? And it's lament, 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 until the end of chapter 11 where he says this, God has imprisoned all in in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who's not in the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For through him and in him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Don't forget that letter was being read aloud in the church at Rome, perhaps by Phoebe, the deacon from Corinth, who brought it to them. And as she's reading it, or whoever's reading it, can you not imagine that she would say, 
amen, that's right. And all God's people said, amen. And then immediately thereafter, she says, or whoever's reading it says, now, by the mercies of God, in the mercies of God, present yourselves, yourselves, as a worshipful response to God's great mercy. I, I, I link it to that simply so that you might hear 12, 1 and 2 in the right tone and with the right amplification. Because this truly is that pivot point where we recognize the staggering place from which we've been delivered and our bright future in Jesus. And then also, and this is what we're going to dig into over the next several Sundays, and also it's this pivot point to figuring out how it is then as God's people who, as, as Beverly Roberts puts it, um, worshiping God with your whole self is like throwing yourself in the offering plate, like head first. That's her, that's her graphic, that's her graphic uh, image in her book on Romans is throw yourself, throw yourself in. And, and, the, and, 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 and the rest of 12 and 13 and even into 14 and 15 Paul's going to talk about the implications of that. We're not going to talk about it this morning, but we're going to tie what we did here this morning. We're going to tie it to our remarks over the next several Sundays because unless you understand that for Paul, moral transformation and ethical behavior comes out of worship, comes from the power of Christ in you, then you want to understand his thinking and you know, more importantly, we want to understand um, how, to, how to put this stuff into action. Now, I'll give you one teaser for where we're going. You know, only the person who lives his or her life, you know, prostrate before God. And I don't mean we're always, you know, on our knees, but in our hearts and our minds on our knees before God. It's only that posture that will enable you to live rightly with your fellow human beings. And that's where Paul's headed. That's where we're headed. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, bless the reading and uh, thoughts around God's word this morning. Amen.